And I'm grateful for Ryan and Larry stepping in and preaching last week. We began this short series on worship. Uh, I, and I also must say that right after worship, Ike Wilson texted me a picture of Ryan wearing a shirt and tie, and it's a tie and jacket. I, I'm not sure it wasn't photoshopped, so if someone else can have proof of that. But I really appreciate them stepping in. We're, we're talking about worship. We wanted to do this this short series over the summer to kind of think about and talk about this important thing we do every time we meet together at Wilshire here, this, this moment of worship. Someone were to ask you to define the word reverence. How would you define that term? It's funny because it almost depends on who you ask. Everybody seems to have a different definition of reverence. Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Just as the book of Hebrews is starting to draw to a close, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12 and verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. With reverence and awe. We come together on Sundays, Wednesdays, sometimes moments between those to worship, and we worship as a community. And there's a lot of discussion about what worship is supposed to be. What is proper worship? What is acceptable worship? What is the worship that God calls us to? And in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, whenever you draw near to God, you draw near with thankfulness, with reverence, and with awe. What is reverence? After spending a week at camp with a bunch of uh, teenagers and preteens, it's interesting to listen to their conversations and, and to what they see as problems in the world and how they see as addressing the problems, how we should respond to issues. And, and one of the things we do at camp is we spend time, in, uh, at least with the ninth through 12th graders, in, a, in kind of a small group setting so that we, we like to ask them questions. You know, they hear us talk a lot, but we, one of the things we do is just ask them what's going on in the world, what's going on in the news, what's going on in the church. What questions do you have? What challenges do you see taking place in the church? And, and, and what do we do about this? And almost every time, in every setting, they always have something to say about worship. Questions they ask. Why do we do this? Why do we say this? Why do we not do this? Worship, it's an important topic for people. And if you're a person who frequents religious blogs and reads religious magazines and listens to religious conversations, you hear a lot said about worship wars today. It's ironic that worship is supposed to be the thing to which we're called. We stand before God, but worship has become such a divisive topic today. Who can lead worship? What songs should be sung in worship? What kind of preaching style should we use in worship? How do you dress when you come to worship? How often should we worship? How long should worship be? Where should you sit when you come to worship? How should you stand? How should you kneel? How should you hold your hands when you come to worship? That's become, that's become the battleground of worship today. And so you might think that any series or any conversation or sermons about worship, you would think should be non-controversial. But it's actually very dangerous ground. That's why I left town and let Ryan start the series last week. 
what do you say about worship? And I have just in observing conversations and watching the church and watching individuals in conversation, sometimes I can't help but stand back and watch the debates and wonder if somehow we've missed the point of all of it. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us draw near to God with thankfulness, with reverence, and with awe. I want to show you three different stories, three different texts scattered through Scripture. And there is a theme that reoccurs in each of these, actually two themes. That as you struggle to find what is reverence and what is awe, it reminds us what we're called to when we come to worship. And in some cases, it will help reposition and realign these conversations that we have when we talk about worship. You see, worship is often, it's often defined as standing in the presence of God. The New Testament uses a term worship that means literally to to prostrate yourself down, to throw yourself down in front of. It's that image of when you and I gather on Sundays and Wednesdays, whenever we gather to worship, we're in God's presence. Have you ever thought what that must be like? Scripture gives us glimpses of people who stood in the presence of God. I want to show you three of these. The first one is found in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. This is the familiar story of Moses. And Moses calling before God. Now you have to keep in mind that when you, when you meet Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Moses has been living in, in Egypt. He lived there for 40 years. And after he tried to defend an Israelite and ended up having to kill an Egyptian, he, he flees from Egypt and he flees to Midian where he becomes a goat farmer or a sheep, a shepherd. And he's out there and he's tending sheep for his father, Jethro. And it's just another day on the, on the mountain, if you will. And, and this is the moment that Moses encounters God. This is the call story of Moses. It begins in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that there the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is, again, the first time Moses stands in the presence of God to his knowledge. And we often hear that that worship is described that way. When we come in here, we're standing in the presence of God. When we worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we commune, we are in God's presence. 
How does that play out? And what does reverence look like when you are in the very presence of God? And here are the two themes. I want you to notice this in Exodus 3 and then we'll see it pop up in two other references. Every time we stand before God's presence, there are two major things at work. To be in reverence and awe of God is to remember who God is and who we are. Every time, anytime someone encounters God, those two topics are always at play. You cannot stand before God without clearly understanding who God is and who we are. Now remember, Moses has been in Egypt. He spent 40 years living in Egypt, 40 years out of Egypt. And he has spent the last 40 years going back to deliver the people. I don't know what Moses was taught back in Egypt. I, I know Moses didn't go to church every Sunday. Or he didn't sit in Sabbath school every Saturday. He, he, I don't know what Moses said. I do know he's learned something about God. Because when God reveals himself, he does so in Exodus chapter 3. He says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So Moses, in some way, has heard the stories of God. The God that promised Abraham he would give him land. The God that promised Abraham he would take care of him. The promise, uh, the God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and kept his word. And I know Moses understands that. I, I know that's been passed down because... That's how God introduces himself on something Moses would understand. But now Moses encounters God and he stands before God in a totally different way. And he's told to remove his sandals. Because when God is present, you are in holy ground. It's not the the nature of the surroundings that make the ground holy. There are some places, some of you have been into very elaborate, ornate churches. You've you've toured Europe, you've been through places. I've been through some very ornate type churches and and structures here in the United States. The cathedral in Washington, the National Cathedral. It's impressive. I've been through some some fancy Orthodox churches. They're they're beautiful, they're ornate. But, But it's not the surroundings that make a place holy. It's not this auditorium that makes this place holy. I was always told, never run in the auditorium. Never run in the church building, which is a good, solid rule. If you're not teaching your children that, please teach your children that. We've had people wiped out in this church building. Don't run in the church building. Why? Because it's God's house. Well, fair enough. But it's not God's house because it's built to look this way. Moses is standing on top of a mountain. It's a weird place. He had been there lots before. And this time he has to remove his sandals. You know why? Because this time the presence of God is clear. When you come into the presence of God, you are coming into the presence of a holy God. It's not common anymore. If you're you're sitting in front of this bush and God arrives, it's no longer just a bush. If you're sitting in these pews and God arrives, they're no longer just benches. If you're standing on ground before God, it's no longer just earth. It is holy ground. And when you come into the presence of God and worship, reverence is acknowledging who God is. He is not common 
He is not average. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, let your name be hallowed. That means let your name be glorified and honored. God's name is not a byword. It's not something you throw in to fill in the gaps. It's not something you shout when you're angry. Oh, God is not something you say when you're frustrated. God's name is holy. And when you're in God's presence, you are on holy ground. To approach God with reverence and awe is to approach God with an understanding of who he is. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who makes covenants, the God who keeps covenants. And when you stand in God's presence, you're reminded of who you are. It's interesting, it happens more than once in Scripture, but Moses is told, take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. R.C. Sproul, a theologian of the past, who's written some great, not too long of the past, who's written some great books and great thoughts, and he writes in his book, The Holiness of God, that when Moses is told to remove the shoes from his feet, Moses is standing on holy ground. The ground was made holy by the presence of God. The act of removing the shoes was a symbol of Moses' recognition that he was of earth, earthy. The feet of man, sometimes called feet of clay, symbolize our creatureliness. It is our feet that link us to the earth. And Moses, you are nowhere near the holiness and majesty of God. You remove your sandals and you remind yourself that you're no better than the dirt on which you stand in the presence of God. Think about that. Worship is a reminder of who we are in God's presence. We are earthy. We are clay. We are dust. We are His creation. There's a second text, Leviticus chapter 10. This is the one that Doug read for us. It's kind of a frightening text, and so I'm glad someone as nice and friendly as Doug read it. Leviticus chapter 10 is, is one of those texts that's usually used and usually explained, usually when we're trying to get people scared of God, and, and it's used in the conversation of what happens when you offer something to God in worship that He has not authorized. And that's all a legitimate conversation. That's all something happening in Leviticus chapter 10. But there's something more. Leviticus in and of itself is an interesting book because, in essence, the children of Israel are about to go into the promised land. They've, they've had the incident with the golden calf. God says, I'm not going with you. Moses says, we're not going without you. God says, I'll send someone, but I'm not going. And Moses says, we're not going without you. And God says, okay, I'll go. And then Moses, back in Exodus, says, I want to see your glory, God. And from Exodus 34 on, God begins to say, if I'm going into the land with you, there's got to be some rules because a holy God cannot dwell amongst an unholy people. And so you get at the end of Exodus, this how we build the tabernacle. The tabernacle is kind of a shield for the people because if God's holiness breaks out among the people, they're toast, they're dead. And then the book of Leviticus begins to put in place these structures of how God can dwell with them. It's the sacrificial system. It's the, it's the priesthood system. And what you have in this section of Leviticus is God ordaining his priests. And these are the sons of Aaron, the two oldest sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. 
And there's this ceremony that begins back in chapter 8 of Leviticus that takes about eight days. It's a consecration. It's an ordination. It's setting them apart. It's helping them understand the task to which they are called. And it is God telling them, you do not just half-heartedly approach the holy of holies of God. And that's when things go wrong. The text says that Nadab and Abihu took their censers, these these trays that held the the fire, the, the coals. They put fire, they added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. And the text says here in Leviticus 10 that this fire of God came out and consumed them. The image seems to be the fire of God from behind the Holy of Holies, that Nadab and Abihu were are standing there and this fire comes out and consumes them. Aaron watches his children die, his two oldest children, and the text says that Aaron remains silent. And there are all these conversations of what went wrong here. What, what did they do wrong? And it's unauthorized. It's unholy. And we get this image sometimes that God is just arbitrary and, and he just looks down and he says, well, they missed that one. I'm going to kill them and move on. It's more than that. In fact, if you read Leviticus chapter 10 at the end, Aaron and his sons make another mistake, but they don't die at the end of chapter 10. His his other son, Moses told them they were supposed to eat of this offering and they were supposed to eat it in a certain place. And, and Aaron and his sons don't eat it. And Moses gets upset at that because he says, you've, dis, you've disobeyed God, but God doesn't kill them there. You see, that mistake at the end of chapter 10 comes from a sincere heart. It's, a, it's an honest mistake. It's, it's not that God's just waiting there, waiting for us to make some mistake, no matter our heart. The problem in Leviticus chapter 10 is, Nadab and Abihu's heart was not in the right place. And you get this because God says, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of the people, I will be honored. So what went wrong? I don't know for certain. Leviticus 16 gives instructions on where the fire was supposed to come from. It was supposed to come from the outer court. And I know it's chapter 16, but it seems they still understood this. It's supposed to come from the outer court, but it seems like what they brought to God was not holy. It was just common. That they just showed up and brought to God whatever they wanted to bring instead of bringing what God had called them to. And it's also extremely interesting that in chapter 10 and verse 8, the next thing God tells Moses is, or Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or fermented drink whenever you go to the tent of meeting. Why is that the thing that God chooses to focus on right after they die? It may be that Nadab and Abihu were drunk. And instead of going and getting the fire from the place God tells them to, they just grab anything and show up with it. There are two things, two themes to be remembered when you go to worship God and stand in his presence. Who God is. I will be honored. I will show my glory. The second is who we are. We are not the ones to make the rules. We are not the ones to show up and tell God what we decided to do. When you come into God's presence, 
you're on God's ground. Reverence to God is a remembrance of who I am and who he is. Every time. Now there's one other text I want to show you. This one's found in Isaiah chapter 6. You've heard this one before. It's Again, it's a call narrative. It's, it's, when, it's when Isaiah is commissioned, if you will. Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. It's an interesting text. It's, it's a contrast. King Isaiah had had reigned over Israel for 54 years. Long time. And for the majority of those 54 years, he was a good king. Towards the end of his life, he was kind of arrogant. He marched into the temple, did what only priests were called to do. He forgot his place. And as a result, he was judged with leprosy because of it. And in the year that the king, this longest reigning supposed good king of Israel, dies, Isaiah captures this glimpse of heaven, and God has not moved. In the midst of chaos and turmoil in the state, in the country, God was still seated where God sits, empowered, enthroned, almighty. The text says that there were angels, verse 2, above, above him were seraphs, each had six wings, two wings covered their faces, two they covered their feet, two they were flying, they were calling one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah says the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, woe to me, I am I, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There are two things to remember when you stand in God's presence. Who God is and who you are. And what Isaiah hears is who God is. Holy, holy, holy. And it reflects in his life who he is. I am unclean. I do not deserve to be here. There's some other things at work in this text and some other things Isaiah is trying to do. But for a purpose this morning, when we talk about what is reverence, what is awe, that's it. Who God is and who I am. John Calvin, the Reformation leader of the past, once said, Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. What you find in these texts with Moses, Nadab, Nabihu, and Isaiah, and throughout the rest of Scripture, is summarized in smaller texts through Scripture. You find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. 
Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter things before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Oftentimes when Gary is our elder on duty, he'll begin worship with the words of Habakkuk 2 and verse 20. Set the music. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Whatever happened to reverence in worship? I admit, it's sometimes frustrating to listen to the way people talk about worship. Preachers included. In a lot of places, worship has become a spectator sport. Like you go to a movie. You pay movie, you want to see a good movie, especially with how much they charge for movies today, right? I paid a lot of movie, I want to get something out of it. And people today shop for churches looking for a worship service that pleases them. We're looking for preachers who make me feel good. And a song service that makes me feel good. And prayers that make me feel happy. You do not go into the house of God thinking of yourself. That is not reverence and awe. The Lord is in His holy temple. And worship has been turned into... A seeker-sensitive sort of thing. I don't want to sound like a cranky old man. But, but we design worship services sometimes today trying to figure out what's going to attract people that if we just have the right songs, the right type of preaching, if we just dress the right way and we, we have the lighting set the right way and the mood of the worship, then maybe people will be attracted to come and sit and worship and the church will grow bigger. Worship is never meant to impress outsiders. Worship is always meant to bring glory and honor to God. And it's when we forget who God is and who we are that worship becomes meaningless. That worship just becomes another pastime that we engage ourselves in to entertain ourselves on Sunday. Because if you're looking for something entertaining, you're not looking for worship. Now, that's not to say you can't enjoy worship. Not at all. People have different definitions of of worship. Uh, I was, I shouldn't tell this story, but I often do. Uh, One time, someone who I loved dearly, I finished preaching and someone came up to me and said, Why do you and Jim have to be so cute when you preach? I didn't handle it the right way. I said, it's just the way God made me. But what the person meant is, why do you joke around? You're in, you're in church. You shouldn't tell jokes in church. And there's some people, some of you may feel this way, that when you come to church, you shouldn't laugh. Look, God created laughter. God created joy. And God wants us to be people of joy and laughter. And laughter is an expression of joy oftentimes. That's not the point. The point is when you come to church and you forget why you're here. That's when it becomes a problem. And when when things are reduced to the simplistic pleasure of ourselves and we miss the holiness of God. You can laugh and still be holy. Jesus, you ever listen to Jesus preach? 
If you're standing in a courtroom and someone sues you for your outer cloak, give them your underwear also. You'll be in court naked. That's the point. Why behold the the moat that's in your own eye when you've got a telephone pole sticking out of your own? Jesus was funny, but he wasn't irreverent. It's not about seriousness and never smiling. It's about remembering who God is and who you are in his presence. And that's why I wonder sometimes in all the conversations we have about worship, if we forget that. What I like and what I want and what I prefer and what I think. I think I should be the one who does this or she should be the one to do that or they should be the ones to do that. When I come to worship, it's not about what I think. Before all the people, I will be glorified. Reverence. It's putting God where He belongs and where He is. And stepping back and remembering where God has placed me. I am clay. And He is holy. It is a word and it is a concept that we struggle with today. But true worship is an encounter with God that reminds us who he is and who we are. Worship is not about us. And the moment we make it about us, it ceases to be worship to God. There's a song that the youth often sing that I think captures this thought very well. The words to which say, to come into the presence of the Lord is to be changed. You cannot come into his presence and remain the same. Everyone who encountered God in scripture, it's Moses at the burning bush, Nadab and Abihu, or Isaiah, encountered the holiness of God. And when we talk about experience at worship, it's that. Our prayer is that when we leave worship every Sunday, that we know what it's like to stand before the God who created us and the God who redeemed us. Because we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved. And we are called to stand before him with thankfulness, with reverence and awe. Because God is a consuming fire. The text is not there to scare you away from God, but to remind you of two important thoughts. Who he is and who we are. That's reverence. You may be here this morning and never become a child of God. God invites you into his presence. But the only way we can stand in the presence of God is if we stand through the blood of Jesus Christ. These instructions in Leviticus are to protect the people because God is holy. You don't stand before God common and unclean. You can't. It's not because God is angry. It's not because God is arbitrary. It's because God is holy. And he has made provision to protect us, to give us access. Hebrews says, so that we can boldly stand in front of God. You do that through his son, Jesus Christ, through his blood that washes and redeems us. And if you are a child of God, can I call you back to reverence, holiness, 
to awe and to wonder because we serve a God worthy of all of it. We can invite you to respond to the invitation today. We do so now as we stand and sing together.